Hello, church. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for the way you guide us, the way you press us into new wine, as we've just heard in the song. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in a mighty way today, Lord. Please protect us from the enemy. May you put a hedge around us that as we listen to this sermon, as we worship together, that we may be protected from the enemy. May your holy angels surround us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2009, a guy by the name of Dan Budiner, uh, he was from National Geographic, he gave a TED Talk about uh, 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 research on what he called the Blue Zones. Maybe some of you have seen this or have heard about it. Uh, he discovered five places in the world uh, where people live the longest and the healthiest. And the five places were uh, Sardinia, Italy. How cool is that? Nicoya, Costa Rica. Icaria, Greece. Loma Linda, California. Uh-huh. And Okinawa, Japan. And besides the fact that they all end with A, interesting enough, <laughs> they all shared other common themes. And some of the common themes were they all ate very simple, mostly plant-based and or seafood diets. Number two, they exercised naturally. In other words, they did some gardening. They liked to walk and, and they did some hiking. Uh, number three, they had deep, meaningful connections, uh, fellowship, an emphasis on community, a sense of belonging. And they had a profound, number four, this was probably the most important of all four of these, profound sense of purpose. In fact, in Okinawa, they actually had a word for this profound sense of purpose. It's a word that, in fact, in English, we don't have an equivalent to. Uh, and it was the title of the sermon. Some of you may have read the sermon and said, what is this word, ikigai? And ikigai is the word that the Okinawans had for this profound sense of purpose. And it basically means, if we were to translate it in the best way, it basically means what gets you up every morning and what keeps you going. Ikigai is that which makes your life significant, that which makes your life worth living. And from the moment that Saul was knocked off his high horse on his way to Damascus, his Ikigai was changed. What got him up every morning, what kept him going, and no matter what, what gave his life significance and purpose, from that moment on, what made him unstoppable, his new ikigai, was Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here's what I believe. I'm going to tell you right from the start. The trajectory of your life, the trajectory of my life, will be determined by the focus of my purpose and your purpose. 
Your life journey is established by your ikigai, by what drives you, by what drives me, by what compels you, by what compels me. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. He was driven by this passionate pursuit of preaching Christ and him crucified and risen. And so he now, as we continue in the book of Acts, he's traveling to this place called Corinth. And first century Corinth was the epicenter of commerce, commerce and trade. And there he met two people. They were Jews that were expelled from Rome. Many Jews were under Claudius. And their name were Aquila and Priscilla. And he set up shop with them because they were tent makers and he too was a tent maker. And this is how he was able to support himself as he preached the gospel. And the Bible tells us that from Sabbath to Sabbath, he preached in the synagogues. But the Bible tells us in chapter 18 that the Jews, the ones he was preaching to, who at that time were actually the church members, became abusive and they began to insult them. And it was at this precise time that Paul reached a level of discouragement that caused him to make a change in his ministry. It was at this moment, a hinge moment in his life, that he began to concentrate solely on the Gentiles. Verse 6 puts it this way. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, this is what they often would do, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In other words, this is it. I'm done. Let me just tell you something. Paul, like all preachers, like all leaders, was not some unemotional machine. Can I get vulnerable with you for a moment? Leaders are not without feelings. There is only so much criticism. There is only so much disapproval and rejection that leaders can take. We are not machines. Yes, we have confidence because God gives us that confidence. But it doesn't make us emotionless. Most leaders are doing the best they can with what they have. But trust me, most of us realize we are far from perfect and we make mistakes. And Paul never thought himself more important than anyone else, only that his greatest joy was the passionate pursuit of preaching Jesus. And he needed to be encouraged, like all leaders. The Bible tells us that just at the right time, Jesus appears to him. Verses 9, 10, and 11 says, On one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Hmm. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack or harm you. Because I have many people in this city. And that encouragement was so strong that in verse 11 it says, So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half 
teaching them the word of God. There have been times in my life when I've not heard the audible voice of Jesus, but through a sermon or through a song, I've heard Jesus speak to me those same words. There are a few things in this world more comforting than a good friend who says to you, I am with you, I got your back. It's been kind of interesting in these past few weeks, Pastor Fred and I have shared similar problems. In fact, they've been back problems. And he and I have been saying to each other, hey, I got your back. I mean, not just, not just I got your back metaphorically, I got your back physically. And there's something about that that is so comforting. Now, you need to know that I'm naturally wired to be positive, sometimes a little too positive. Very few things affect me. But from time to time, and my wife Nancy will tell you, in 30 years of ministry as a leader, Nancy and I have experienced some disappointments, some moments that have discouraged us deeply. And I've heard the sweet, encouraging voice of Jesus through friends, through song, through prayer, say to me, do not be afraid, Sergio. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And we need those words. We need that support. And here's what I've learned. The enemy is relentless, but God is faithful. Did you hear me? The enemy is relentless, but God is faithful. Let me say that again. The enemy is relentless, but God is faithful. I love that. Now listen to what happens, in fact. Jesus proves this immediately. In verse 12 and 13, something happens. It says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack. They, they came as a pack. A united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. I want to thank Cole Willis for some of these photos that I'm going to show you right now that he shared from us from his trip to Greece, I believe last year, that are pertinent to our sermon this week. So here is the judgment seat where Paul was brought before Gallio. And, and, and Cole was able to stand right there where that judgment seat was. Pretty amazing. And, and, it's, and it's, uh, although it's, it's in, in ruins right now, that is, he was able to stand right where Paul was standing. Now, Gallio didn't realize this probably, but... He was inspired by Jesus without knowing it. Gallio proved to be a diplomat and a true politician and did not allow these Jewish leaders to make a case of it. And it was a real disgrace to them. The Bible says that Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that. The Bible says that then he left his brothers and sisters. Verse 18 then he left his brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And before he sailed, he had his hair cut at he had his, his hair cut off at Sentecra, 
because of a vow he had taken. Apparently he had taken a Nazarene vow like Samson of old. And now the vow was over and he had cut off his hair. And here's another picture of where Paul would have, this is exactly what Paul would have seen as he set sail for Syria. Now as Paul makes his way to Ephesus, a new figure emerges on the scene. And his name is Apollos. Paul feels comfortable about this guy. He's a very gifted communicator. He's an eloquent speaker. It says in uh, verse 24 uh, and 25 uh, and 26, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. So he knew the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus. Catch this. This is important. He taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he taught about Jesus accurately, but he only understood so much. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue with whatever little bit he knew. And some of us need to know that, you know, we don't have to know it all. Whatever we know is what we need to speak boldly about. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. I love the fact that Apollos is humble enough to learn more. You, can, you know that he knows about Jesus because he allows these two people to teach him more. He's humble enough to know more about the humble Jesus. Now, what I love about this situation is that God is not only adding converts to the cause, but this tells us that God is adding leaders to the cause. You know, when I teach leadership, one of the things that I say is that the greatest joy of a leader is not just growing followers, but it's growing leaders. And one of the best things that we can do is grow more leaders. But unfortunately, with new leaders also come new challenges. The great rebel, the enemy of soul, is ready to turn this blessing into a curse by attempting to arouse jealousy and partisanship among the ranks. I see it all the time. But can I tell you something? The Bible is clear. Jesus is clear. Paul is clear. There is no place for disunity in Christianity. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Love one another. Paul is constantly admonishing believers, please be united, stay together. You are a community, work together. If there is one thing that I wish about you, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, come together. In fact, he talks about this in Corinthians, as he's writing back to the Corinthians later on about this, this, this unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 11 through 13, listen to what it says. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. These are believers. 
there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which was the Greek word for Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. <laughs> is Christ divided, Paul says? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, these are rhetorical questions he's asking. Of course not. Later on, a few chapters later, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 4 through 6, he continues. He says, for one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are we, are you not mere human beings? I mean, it, it's, you, you're not being spiritual here. You're being too human. You're not allowing the Holy Spirit to, to affect you. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul, he says? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. At the end of the day, it's God. It's always about God. It's never about us. And yet the greatest tool the enemy has to discredit Christianity is this unity. You see, he knows that if he can cause us to be split, he succeeds in presenting uh, the followers of God as broken, as divided, and directionless, without a true ikigai. In chapter 19, continues the narrative with Apollos staying in Corinth and Paul arriving at Ephesus. And there he meets some believers who had never heard of the Holy Spirit and his marvelous work. They too only knew of John the Baptist and his preaching and were baptized in the Jordan either by him or John the Baptist's disciples but knew very little of Jesus and the promise of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they say, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul rebaptizes them, which is interesting. Acts 19.5 says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And at that point, they received the Holy Spirit. They were not being rebaptized. Catch this. This is so important. They were not being rebaptized because they had lost their way and now were coming back. No, they were being rebaptized because they had now new understanding of truth. See, truth is progressive. We sometimes think that truth is stagnant, but truth is not stagnant. We must be always opened, open to the fact that truth can unfold to us. The Bible unfolds new truths to us every day. Our pioneers, used, our pioneers used to call it present truth because it is ever unfolding. There's been sometimes a certain stigma attached to rebaptism in the minds of some, particularly if someone has appeared to be a good church member and now seeks rebaptism. I wonder what he did wrong. I wonder what secret she is hiding. People are thinking all kinds of crazy things. I don't know what it is about us that always move towards being judgmental. 
I love this story that Pastor Morris Venden once told of a couple that were being rebaptized. They were members in good standing, uh, but had only lately understood assurance of salvation and salvation by faith. And, and, and it recently entered into a deep relationship with Christ. And as they were about to be baptized, they, they, they gave this little speech. They said, I suppose some of you are wondering why we have chosen to take this step. Perhaps you're wondering what we did wrong. <coughs> well, we did the worst thing. We did the worst and Morris Venden says that you could hear a pin drop at this moment. And so they continued. We lived our good, upright, moral, religious lives apart from Jesus. And that is the worst thing you could do. Hmm. When I baptize someone, when I'm getting them ready to do that, one of the most important things I want to know is, do they have assurance of salvation? Do they have a deep relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting only in Him and His power? If they have that, then I know that they're ready to let the universe know that they're on God's side. Everything else can come afterwards. That is essential. That is fundamental. And I know that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, time doesn't permit us to discuss all of the nuances of these chapters. And in fact, I would encourage you to read them. But the Apostle Paul continues to be unstoppable. Some believed, some didn't. And they tried to cause problems as always. The Bible tells us that Paul did many miracles in chapter 19. In fact, there's some interesting things about some of the miracles that Paul did. Even his articles of clothing had power. Some people would take his handkerchief and, and they would give it to somebody that was sick and, and that person was healed. I mean, it's amazing. We don't experience those kinds of things these days. But when the church was, was embryonic, when it was new, God allowed these miracles to happen. And I believe in the end of days, it's going to happen again. Then comes a very interesting story. And we do well to heed this story because it talks of the perils of impersonating Christianity. Have you ever met somebody that impersonates Christianity? Here it goes. Beginning in verse 13, reading through verse 16, it says, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. <clears throat> Verse 14, seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, in fact, he was a chief priest, were doing this. And one day, and I know this is not funny, but I'm sorry, it hit me kind of funny. 
One day the evil spirit <coughs> answers them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Listen, if you try to fake being a believer, not only will others know about it, not only will Jesus be able to see it, but even demons can tell. That's how bad hypocrisy is. It is a grave mistake, friend, to pretend to be a Christian. Now, I am sure that few of us would have the audacity to confront evil spirits, even if we're assuming the name but not the power. Yet, just as dangerous, listen to me, just as dangerous is the slow desensitization of living an inauthentic, powerless life that one day finds us before the throne. And on that day, it will not be demons, but Jesus that will be saying to us, depart from me. I never knew you. There is nothing more important than to get to know Jesus Christ. To have that relationship with him. It's not about the miracles. It's about that relationship. Well, you can imagine that this caused many to be in awe and wonder at the name of Jesus. In fact, it caused, the Bible says, a great revival in Ephesus. And the word of God spread. But as always, not without opposition. And as the church thrived, Satan strived to destroy it or discredit it. And as we conclude with chapter 20, we see Paul retracing his steps, traveling back, encouraging the believers he had left beyond, behind in the several regions of Greece and Macedonia. And then in the famous story of the young man named Eutychus who fell asleep in church, because Paul was preaching a long sermon. I won't spend too much time on this as we have discussed this at length in just a recent sermon when we were talking about uh, our church growing young. But I will say this. I, I, I feel sorry for Eutychus. Now, the poor guy, you know, when we get to heaven, all of the believers that know the story will meet Eutychus in heaven and they'll be like, ah, yes, you're the one who fell asleep in church. And then you fell and you died. And Paul, yes, I know, I'm the guy. <laughs> the poor guy not only fell asleep in church and died, but now everybody knows about it. And he's going to have to be, the, yes, I'm the one. I'm, he is known for that. That's the only time he has ever mentioned. I must admit, I'm just going to tell you. There's been times where I've secretly prayed when I've seen a sleeping member that they would, at the very least, fall out of their chair. But, just kidding, really. 
I will say this about that story. To remind us to keep an eye on our young people. Keep an eye on our young people that are half in and half out. Let's, give them, let's get them involved and be part of this great movement before they fall totally out. We are a church that not only loves our young people, but we thrive by involving them. They are the new wine. Chapter 20 ends with this beautiful, heartwarming speech by Paul. I would love for you to read it at some point. It's well worth it. It starts in verse 18. We won't get into it right now. But in, this, in these words, he gets vulnerable. He begins to share his memories, his uncertainties, and his desire to finish the race. And then he instructs them to guard their hearts. And he says, beware of the wolves. The wolves on the inside of the church, the wolves on the outside of the church. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says these words, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul is saying goodbye to a group of dear friends on this Asian beach, Several of, of the men weeping freely because they know that they will never see him again. And there's aging apostle holding each eye, trying to memorize each face. And then he looks out at the stormy sea and he says, Now I'm going to Jerusalem, drawn irresistibly by the Holy Spirit. I'm going not knowing. You've heard these words many times. We talked about it, about Abraham going not knowing. As believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are constantly being asked to go and not know, to embrace uncertainty. When was the last time you moved forward embracing uncertainty? <clears throat> we live in a time right now of uncertainty. Are you afraid or are you embracing it? Are you living by wholehearted trust? Are you compelled by your ikigai? Or are you... Or, or are you Worried, and Jesus says, which one of you by worrying could add a single inch to your height? You know, I look back in my years of ministry, 30 years ago, it was actually 40 years ago, and God knocked me off my horse. At that time in my life, all I cared about was rock and roll. Wine, women, and song. All I cared about was to make money, to make music. It's such a long time ago. And yet it's still so clear in my mind. Just the flip of a coin. A hinge moment in my life. When my ikigai changed drastically. And what got me up in the morning, what drove me, what compelled me, changed. I thank God every day 
that he gave me a new reason to get up every morning. That God gave me a new ikigai. What is your ikigai? That's my question. So I leave you with three questions as you think about this. Question number one, what compels you? I mean, just, just don't just listen to these questions. Think about them. What compels you? Question number two, how convinced of Jesus' power to save you are you? And question number three, are you committed to the call? Are you ready to get up every morning and say, okay, Lord, where to next? Who can I bring a smile to today? Who can I share the gospel with today? I don't know it all, but what I know, I'm ready to give. Lord, I'm ready to go not knowing because of who you are. And I'll end with the last words of the chapter, verses 36 through 38. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. What a precious moment. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. But the truth is, one day they will see each other. One day we will all see each other. Nancy and I have gone from church to church in our ministry. There was one time, I'll never forget, we were at a church. We were only there for about a year and a half. We felt that it's the first time ever. It's the only time ever that, that we were only at a church for, for a short time and we felt an intense call to go to another church. Most of our churches, that we, we, we had been there for, for six to ten years. This, this time, we were only there a year and a half. I'll never forget gathering the elders and the board together one Sabbath after church to tell them the news. And they all cried. I remember this sweet moment. Nancy and I looking at each other like, are we doing the right thing here? <laughs> but I remember thinking, we will see each other again in heaven. So my friend, trust me when I tell you, ask God to reveal to you your ikigai, your reason for living, and may you be compelled to move forward no matter what. May you be unstoppable. May God bless you always. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church. Amen.